Uh, my name is Johnny Craig, uh, and I, I, think, I think my title now is Virtual Ministries Pastor. And if that sounds like not a real thing, hey, we're figuring it out together, okay? Uh, and I think for a lot of you, you're thinking, wait, didn't you leave and move and go away? Aren't we done with you? And the answer is, no, you're not. No. Uh, I am still going to be part of the teaching team. I'm still excited to be able to be part of this amazing staff that works here at Meredith Drive and the bridge. And so throughout the summer, I'll be here twice a month. In the fall, uh, it'll be once a month. But I, um, I told somebody I moved two hours away, but my love didn't diminish at all for this body uh, in that move. And so when an opportunity arose to stay on staff, to help with uh, supporting things like video and online ministries and things that will continue to evolve and you'll hear more about in the future, I just was thrilled, just thrilled uh, by what God is doing. And so uh, grateful to be with you uh, still. Grateful to be with you still. So when I was a kid, uh, yep. heck yeah, Steve. Heck yeah. <laughs> so when I was a kid, uh, my dad would make me read historical biographies and then write book reports on them. And you're thinking, that sounds horrible. And you'd be right, it was. Uh, and here's the thing, it was never on like a normal, it's, it was never like an A-list historical figure. It was never like, read a book about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. It was like, read a book about Sir Francis Drake. Who is Sir, that's like a C-list historical celebrity, uh, really. Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe in like 1577, which is cool, but also, you know, who cares, man? Sir Francis Drake. Like, I don't care about this kind of stuff. Um, but whenever I complained about this task, whenever I complained about having to read one of the, uh, these books and writing a report, my mom would always say that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Now, I grew up and realized my mom's not the only person who said that, but back then that just felt like something a mom would say, right? Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And so I read the books um, about Sir Francis Drake. So there is a lot of hullabaloo, that's a theological term, uh, there's a lot of hullabaloo right now in our culture about history, right? You cannot turn on the news, you cannot scroll through Facebook without seeing somebody talking about critical race theory. And I saw the eyes come up here as soon as I said those three words. I'm not talking about it today. I'm not a crazy person, okay? I'm not talking about critical race theory. But it's, we're all hearing about it, and the reason we're hearing about it is because there's questions of how we tell our history, how we tell the story of who we are as Americans, right? And so there's a lot of conversation happening around that right now. And I think that's all very important and it's all very interesting and I'd be more than happy to have a Zoom hangout with anybody else here who thinks that's interesting and important. We're not again, we're not talking about it, I'm not crazy. Uh, but I just pointed out to say we're not that special. So we think, you know, these fights that we're having about uh, who gets to tell history and how we tell history, fights we're having about what year America was founded and how it was founded, all of that feels so pressing on us. And it is, it's pressing and it's important, like I said. But it's not actually that unique because every culture throughout time has had to deal with how they tell and understand their history. Questions of what and how history are told are important to every culture and society. I'm actually listening to a podcast right now and it's about the rise of, of white nationalism in Germany. Very interesting stuff, I know. Uh, but it's amazing to think that this is happening because Germany is a, is a country that has really dealt with their history quite honestly, and yet they're still having these problems. Because the questions of history are always kind of in flux, and our history engages our identity, 
right? So there's always versions of history being told. And within the Bible itself, which is why we're gathered here today, within the Bible itself, we actually see questions of national history and identity being played out and interpreted all over the place. Most of the Old Testament is about history and identity, these people's history and identity as the people of God. God is always telling God's people to remember Remember where you came from. Remember what has happened. And yet they always seem to forget. Kings would come into power and begin to reinterpret the history of Israel as one of power and of strength. They would reinterpret the story of Israel as a, as a mighty nation that should be conquering and conquesting. And then God inevitably would send a prophet along to remind them that the strength of Israel has never been about their armies or their economy, but their strength has always been about their reliance on God. And it's this cycle over and over. Who's, who's telling the story? Who's telling the history? Who's creating the identity of the people? And it's interesting, in Scripture there are actually different perspectives on the history of Israel. There's different perspectives because in the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you get what, what is basically the official state version of the history of Israel. It's, it's king-centric. So in, if you read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, what you find is a lot of stories about kings. And, and they're usually glossed up a little bit. I mean, it's not that it's dishonest, right? But this is the story that the kings want you to know. So the story of Solomon is the story of grandeur, of building this temple, of building this palace. And yet when you look at the prophets you see more of a guerrilla history, is what I would say. Uh, you see more of like the history of the people. And so suddenly the story of Solomon is colored a bit differently. What did this glory and conquest cost? What is the price to pay for the average person? And what you see is that there's these competing narratives. The conquests of the kings cause social disparities. The focus on the glory of the nation of Israel uh, generally re resulted in the worship of God becoming neglected. It's not quite right to say that these narratives are competing with one another. The Bible does not pit itself against itself. That's not what we're talking about. But it's important that when we read one perspective of history in the Bible, we turn around and read another. When we read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, it's important to find the prophets who were speaking at that same time to hear what did they have to say about the way that things were. It's important to not neglect the story that we see played out in the prophets. We can't just accept the official state version of history. So all of that brings us to our passage for this morning, and it is from uh, the well-loved an oft-quoted book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. I'm kidding. You've never heard anybody preach about Ezekiel. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that it is not oft-quoted and well-loved. And the reason is that Ezekiel is absolutely bonkers. Again, that's a theological phrase. This is a crazy-making kind of a book. If you've ever read Ezekiel, you already know this. It is like, it's really wild stuff in the book of Ezekiel. It's not easily digestible. It's not easily understood. In the first chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of molten metal in the sky, and he sees wheels spinning inside of wheels, and he sees angels that have four faces. And then God hands him a scroll, and then Ezekiel says the scroll is full of sad songs, sad stories, and warnings. And then Ezekiel does what any of us would do with a scroll. He eats it. 
and he says that it tasted as sweet as honey. That's the first two chapters. There's like 46 more chapters after that. That's the first two. Ezekiel is wild stuff, man. All of that happens in the first two chapters. And I'm not going to try to unpack all of that or try to unpack all of Ezekiel. I think I would need some PhDs, right, to really understand what these wheels inside the wheels mean. But I bring all that up because I think we have the same reaction to Ezekiel today that the people he was talking to and interacting with back then had. He was weird back then. Like, we read that and are like, this is weird. It was always weird. Like, this was always strange. It was always off-putting. It always made people uncomfortable to hear things like this. He was eccentric. But often, that's who God used and still uses to get God's message across. People who make us uncomfortable. People who don't fit the mold. People who don't conform well, those are the people that God used time and time again, and I would say still uses to help get the message of God across to God's people. And the message that God gave Ezekiel was important then, and I'm going to, I think, be able to show that it's still important for us now. God gave Ezekiel a message that cut against what probably seemed like a smart national strategy. Politically speaking, uh, speaking in the context of, of, of uh, how you make an empire or how you make a government, uh, there was probably something that made a lot of sense happening. And then God tells Ezekiel, you need to go speak out against that thing. Again, that's going to make people very uncomfortable. And the message that God gave Ezekiel was tied very tightly to the history of God and of God's people. Again, history makes identity. So we're going to read it. Uh, there's about... Eight verses here, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's Ezekiel. It might feel like a lot. We're going to read it together. Ezekiel chapter 17. I was thinking about how Pastor Suzanne always says, if you have your Bible, turn with me now. I would say, like, if you have your Bible, good luck finding this. Ezekiel 17. You've never been to this page, okay? Here we go. When the word of the Lord came to me, it said, say this, say to this rebellious people, do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her kings and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family, made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land so that the kingdom would be brought low unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. So Israel has been made a vassal state by Babylon. That's basically what is being described right here. Uh, Babylon showed up, they conquered, but they didn't take everybody away. They left a guy and some people and said, you can still be the king, quote unquote, but we're not going to give you any wise men, we're not going to give you any help, and the whole point is you cannot rebel against us, right? You are stuck in this kind of subservient state. And then Ezekiel says, but... But the king rebelled against Babylon by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Now we're going to skip down to verse 22. As always happens in the prophets, right? We get this message of woe, and now we're going to hear a little something else. This is what the sovereign Lord says. 
I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring the tall tree down and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, my son Abram is five. He's five, and he loves to cook and bake. Every time I like to bake bread, and every time I bake bread, I say, does anybody want to help? And my eight-year-old and my 10-year-old are like, no. Uh, and Abram is like already in the kitchen. He's already got the flour all over his body, okay? Like he loves it. He loves to help. He loves to knead the dough. He loves to cook. Sometimes when I'm cooking uh, dinner, I'll invite him in. He pulls his little chair up to the counter, uh, and he wants to help. And so I've been letting him do things that are too dangerous for a five-year-old to do, but under supervision, you see, uh, so that he can learn about risk, I think, because I'm a good dad. Uh, so the other day we made lemonade, and I let him cut some lemons, and he got lemon juice in his eye. He did not cut off a finger, but he learned some lessons, and that's important. Um, when I make pasta, I let Abram stir the pasta. You're like, boiling? Uh, yeah, that's right, boiling. I let him stir. And we all, every time we have the same conversation, you got to be careful, this water is hot, this will burn you. And inevitably, we start going, he starts stirring, and his hand, it's, he's never splashed water, but his hand gets lower and lower on that spoon, and then eventually that steam gets him. And he screams, I've been burned. He's never burned, right? But it hurts. You know that feeling. And w the first time it happens, right, I'm always like, I'm patient, right, because I'm a good dad. I'm like, it's okay, bud. You're not burned. Just you got to be careful. Remember, we're in the kitchen. You got to be careful. And then we're doing it, and inevitably, it happens again. His hand gets lower on the spoon. He hits that steam. I've been burned. And that time, I kick him out of the kitchen. I'm done with you, okay? You're holding me up in here. You're out. Uh, I get frustrated, and I kick him out, because that, you know, I'm, you know, I have a line. Um... A casual reader of today's passage might wonder, what in the world is happening? Why is God so upset that the king of Israel went to Egypt to get help against the Babylonians? Why is God so upset about this situation? It seems like the Babylonians are the bad guys, and the king of Israel just wants to beat the bad guys. So what is the problem? Why is God so frustrated by this situation? Isn't the king supposed to take care of his people? If the Egyptians can help beat the Babylonians, isn't that a good thing? But for starters, the Babylonian occupation of Israel was explicitly part of God's plan for God's people. This, this was their consequence for what they had done and not done. They had been given warnings and warnings and warnings about the right way to live, about the right way to care for the people in their society, about the right way to worship God, and they just ignored and ignored and ignored. And God finally said, all right then, I'm letting the Babylonians loose, and they're going to conquer you. So this was all part of God's plan. But beyond that, God was frustrated because of all the places Israel could run for help. The absolute worst place was Egypt. This is going back to the steam after it's burned you, right? You already know what happens in Egypt. If you know the history of God's people, you know that really their history in a lot of ways started in Egypt. It started with Abraham, but by the time you get to Jacob and his sons, they're in Egypt. 
And then they become enslaved people in Egypt. This is the absolute worst place to go because these are the people that God had to save you from. Egypt was where you were enslaved. Egypt was the place of your greatest oppression as a people. Egypt was the place where they cried out to God for rescue. God, rescue us from this place. And God answered. The whole story, the whole history of of Israel is kind of like predicated on this moment of the Exodus when they said, God, help us, and God came and answered. In the battle of Egypt versus God, God won. And so when the king of Israel goes to Egypt for help, it's a complete rejection of God and the story that God has written for God's people. Again, when you forget the history, you're going to just go and make the same mistakes again. You went to Egypt once before. Do you remember that? Do you remember how that ended? And now you're going to go to Egypt. You don't ask God for help. You go to Egypt for help of all the places that you could go. They went to the exact wrong place for safety, security, and peace. And that right there, I think, is where the story of God's people as told to us through Ezekiel meets up with our story as God's people now. Knowing our history helps us navigate our own world and context and culture. And this is our history as the people of God. Because I think this type of history does have a tendency to repeat itself. I think that just like Israel ran back to the place that God had rescued them from, we are prone to run toward things in our life that God has rescued us from and called us out of. That when we want safety, security, and peace, that's what Israel wanted. When we want safety and security and peace, our immediate tendency often is to run toward those things that God has rescued us from, that God has called us out of, instead of running to God for those things. When we are longing for belonging, do we run toward God and the people of God, or do we run toward shallow social groups? where everything we say can be parroted back to us and we can feel good about all of our views and beliefs and all this different kind of stuff. When we want true community, are we running toward God or are we running toward that? When we long for meaning, do we turn toward what God has called meaningful or do we seek out positions of power and authority so that we can feel better about ourselves? And it's not that those positions are inherently bad, but how we get to them makes a big difference. Is this an invitation by God to step into that kind of place to do something redemptive? Or are we chasing it because it's giving us meaning? Are we running toward the very thing that God has actually rescued us from, the need to feel powerful in order to feel fulfilled? When we feel empty, do we numb ourselves with endless scrolling or with binge-watching or with self-medicating? Or do we listen to who God tells us we are through what Christ has done for us? Where are we seeking to get our emptiness filled? Are we running back to the Egypts of our life? Are we running back to those places that God has called us out of and given us freedom from instead of turning back to God? Ezekiel made people uncomfortable. If you go read the book, he did a lot of weird stuff, right? And it did. It made people uncomfortable. He was odd and off-putting. He spoke in ways that were very difficult to decipher sometimes in these parables and stories that didn't make much sense to anybody. But the only way to 
question the status quo. The only way to question what kings and empires told was the authorized version of history is by making people uncomfortable. To ask hard questions and remind people of uncomfortable truths. And that's what's amazing about Ezekiel and this passage today. Because he did that. By reminding them of their true history, he had to put them in a place of discomfort. But also by reminding them of their true history, he could point Israel toward the future that God had planned for them. That's that second half of the passage. Because if we listen to the version of history uh, of God's people, and we accept the authorized state version where everything was good and conquest and glory and temples and all this different kind of stuff, it can feel like the kingdom of God was already there. That sounds really great. Isn't that what the kingdom of God is? And yet Ezekiel points out, this is not even a true version of reality. I'm going to point you back to your true history in order that I can point you toward what is actually the kingdom of God. You look at history to see the future. And what Ezekiel saw and told us is this beautiful picture of hope. A picture of a great cedar with outstretched boughs and branches where all the birds of the air could make their nests together. And that same kind of picture of hope would be picked up hundreds of years later by another very strange, very off-putting man who questioned the status quo and ran afoul of those who were in power. It'd be picked up by this other man who told a parable, just like Ezekiel liked to tell parables, about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And this very strange, very off-putting man who made a lot of people very, very uncomfortable picked up this same kind of image of a mustard seed. A little branch of a cedar, mustard seed. They're mirroring each other. And how absurd it must have sounded to people to hear that the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. The fullness of God's plans for the universe. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, that's what we're talking about. The fullness of God's plans for the universe is like a mustard seed. This sounds crazy. But this man pointed out that a mustard seed starts small. So small that it's hard to have faith that it can ever become anything at all. But it grows and grows and grows until its branches are outstretched so that all the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. Does this sound poetic? The rhyming of God's history, of God's story, that always draws on the past of where we've been, of the identity of God's people, always draws on the true history of the way things have been to point us toward this more beautiful future. I don't think I'm quite as strange as either, either Ezekiel or Jesus. I hope, honestly, that I'm not as strange as either Ezekiel or Jesus, but I hope that I'm strange enough to ask you today to take both of those men seriously. To believe that God is strong and mighty and that God displays that strength and might not in the way of Egypt, not in the way of Rome, with standing armies and booming economies, but through little branches and tiny seeds growing large enough for the whole world to come and sit under the shade of. All the birds, Ezekiel says. All the kinds of birds. All 
It's big enough for the whole world to come and sit under the shade of this tree. And we are invited into that shade, away from and out of the patterns of the world around us, away from and out of the places that God has called and rescued us from, out of Egypt. We have been called to sit under the shade of this tree where the people of the world are gathered. The invitation this morning is to take our history and our identity seriously enough to imagine a future place as beautiful as that. It might mean that we have to reject the authorized version of history, and it will absolutely result in us being at least a little bit uncomfortable a lot of the time. But as the mustard seed grows within us, as it gets planted deep into our soul, this kingdom of God mustard seed, I believe that we'll catch a glimpse of what Ezekiel saw and what Jesus promised. I believe that as that mustard seed grows, as we get called out of Egypt, as we reject our tendency to want to run back to those things that we have been rescued from, and that mustard seed grows, I believe that we'll see a little glimpse of what Ezekiel saw and Jesus promised. We'll get a little glimpse of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I thank you that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts. I thank you that you can't be figured out, that you can't be put into a formula that, it, that we can make sense of. God, I thank you that you have invited us not... <laughs> God, you've not invited us to plant forests full of gigantic trees 